Hello. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This week, Samaya Keynes and I have a four-part conversation about trade deals with Professor Danny Roderick. Danny Roderick is the Ford Foundation Professor of International Political Economy at Harvard University. Here's part two of our conversation. Let's talk about possible ways to improve trade deals. So one of the things that you've mentioned is, is this idea that trade deals should address social dumping. Could, could you explain that? Social dumping refers to um, the kind of trade that might um, undermine pre-existing social bargains, whether, whether it's environmental rules or, 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 uh, or labor standards in the importing countries. And the analog is, is with uh, sort of the other kind of dumping, which uh, is in the international trade rules, that if, that if, um, uh, that if uh, a country is exporting to your market uh, below cost, uh, then you have a remedy. Uh, and the remedy is you can put an anti-dumping duty on those exporters. Now, there is no economic rationale for anti-dumping uh, in the existing regime. Strictly from an economic standpoint, it doesn't make sense. I think the rationale uh, which justifies, and by and large appropriate rationale, is that it that increases the sense of fairness. So every market uh, is embedded in a certain set of rules of fair game. Uh, that is that we don't throw people into sort of you know wild competition without any rules. Um, and those rules are about fairness. That in the domestic competition, uh, it means that you know that you compete with others uh, that had access to the same ground rules as you did, and that you don't uh, you don't have an unlevel playing field. That somebody doesn't get a subsidy or is not allowed to violate domestic labor standards uh, and therefore become a stronger competitor against you. Everybody's operating under the same ground rules. And again, it's something that economists don't think about too much, but I think the justifiable sense in which anti-dumping belongs in the international trade regime is that uh, that, that if for whatever reason uh, some companies are able to sell to your market at below cost, Either because you know they have big pockets, or because they have access to patient capital, because their financial system is different, or because they are being in one way or another financed by their governments uh, implicitly. That that's not a fair competition. That you shouldn't. This should be outside uh, the rules. Um, and I think the, the 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 social dumping analog is exactly the same, uh, but in the social domain. That is that the the idea would be that. It's unfair to tell our workers that, for example, that they should compete uh, with workers in other nations where their rights to bargain, uh, their 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 you know safety conditions in the factory, are violated to such an extent that foreign companies are able to get a competitive edge vis a vis our own, and effectively, therefore, such competition is a way of telling our workers either you reduce your own standards and become ready to work more like under their standards, or else you're going to lose your job. And I think that that's, that kind of unfair competition is uh, what is still not uh, in the rules. You know, it, it, there, there are no rules uh, against such unfair competition. And I think that's why I think that it's kind of a social dumping analog to regular anti-dumping, uh, I think, makes sense and I think belongs in the rules. So I suppose if you were trying to apply that in practice, then you would inevitably end up writing in labor standards to trade deals. No, um, no, no. 
No, no. Because so, wouldn't you have to write down the circumstances no, that everyone would have to adhere to, and then if they didn't adhere to those, then you could no, put no. No, you 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 would write down you would write down the procedural standards in the international rules. That is that the international rules would contain procedural safeguards against pure protectionism. So therefore, the international rules would specify. Uh, loosely speaking, the kind of domestic administrative procedure that has to take place uh, in order to ensure that the result is not protectionist, but a legitimate or justifiable uh, protection against uh, social dumping. But so when you define way, social dumping, aren't you defining so relative to some it, standard? Yeah, but I think that that standard has got to be national. It cannot be international. So, so here is, let me back uh, up here again, because I think this brings up an, an inter- important area where, in fact, I, I differ from a lot of my sort of you know, progressive friends and, 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 and uh, um, who think about trade issues. I think a lot of people who look at these problems of um, uh, regulatory arbitrage and social dumping and worry about you know, differences in, in, in labor standards across countries and so forth, their approach is to say, let's either as part of trade agreements or more generally, let's, let's sort of have let's try to upgrade uh, social standards globally. Uh, so in the context of the TPP, for example, there was an attempt to negotiate higher labor standards or have some ways in which uh, to ensure that labor standards would be upgraded in, in, in Vietnam, for example. Now, I'm not necessarily against that, but I think that, A, because that... Is we're only at the very beginning of that process, and B, because I'm sort of skeptical about the efficacy of international agreements uh, on uh, labor standards. I think it's my preferred procedure would be one that at the very least complements any international effort and therefore gives domestic countries domestic paths, that is, domestic remedies. So in my prefer- preferred approach, uh, social dumping would be administered domestically, and it would be a domestic process. Um, uh, and therefore, when you ask the question, what would be the measure of social dumping, it would be, again, let me give you an analogy. When we keep goods out that do not satisfy our domestic lead standards for toys, the relevant standard is the national one. We say that we set a domestic uh, lead content standard, and we keep goods out that do not satisfy it. So I think there's got to be an analog domestically, which can only be arrived at through deliberation and discussion, and, and it'll, it may take some time, is that there has to be some domestic discussion about you know, what kind of goods produced under what kind of ways are, are really unacceptable in terms of competition. It's easy to define two ends. On the one hand, it's easy to say that any good that comes in because the workers were earning less simply because the workers were earning less than domestic workers, that wouldn't satisfy the social dumping requirement because you might say, look, you know, they might be earning less because their productivity is less. Uh, so that on its own would not be ground for uh, 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 ruling that there is social dumping. At the very end, other end, goods made uh, by slave labor, uh, for example, that would clearly be a case where, you know, in fact, existing trade rules already uh, uh, keep out uh, prison labor. So this is like prison labor is not subject to the usual trade rules because of the argument that that's a legitimate form of production to enter international trade. 
Slave trade, of course, I mean, goods made with slave labor, of course, would be an even more extreme case of that. So that's another case where, in fact, at least with respect to prison labor, we've already defined, and that's actually an international definition, we've defined internationally that that's unfair competition. The middle part, I think, has got is up for grabs. And I think what I would like to see is, in fact, two things. One is a multilaterally negotiated set of procedural safeguards in terms of how that process domestically should be. So that that international agreement, for example, must specify the transparency of the process, that the process might must be open to all the stakeholders. What kind of questions must that process actually answer? Um, but that the substantively, you know, that process must take place domestically, where effectively, if a domestic group, let's say a labor union uh, or a set of producers, are arguing against letting imports come in on the basis of social dumping, they have to make a positive case uh, that that these imports are undermining existing norms of employer-employee relationships that are embedded in our current regulations and our standards. And groups on the other side, which benefit from these imports, would then have to make the argument that that is not the case. Now, if it is slave labor or prison labor, you can easily see how it would be very difficult for a you know, group that would benefit from this trade to actually, in a public domain, make the argument, yeah, we still benefit. You know, there's still the gains from trade. There's still the Harburger Triangles. Let's, let's let these goods in. Uh, in other cases, it's going to be very hard. But I think there's no way that we can evade this question in a world that's so tightly integrated and where countries are competing uh, and, and the jurisdictional boundaries ensure that that sort of countries are coming into exchange with each other with very, very different sets of rules and ground rules. And I think, you know, we are at the, only at the very beginning of this. But if we don't confront this issue head on as to how we actually increase the legitimacy and the perceived fairness of this trade and have it form, enable this discussion rather than, you know, shove it under the rug, uh, that you know, this only becomes a bigger issue, and I'll tell you exactly how it becomes a bigger issue. It becomes a bigger issue because you get somebody like Donald Trump coming and then using the unfair trade argument and tarring you know the eighty-five percent of trade with this, as opposed to potentially maybe only the five percent that might be uh, really where it might be an issue. Let's talk a little bit about that old TPP deal and what may end up being proposed in this new NAFTA because. To me, it sounds like a lot of the elements that you're interested in in having were there. So the United States pushed for including the kind of four basic ILO provisions on um, labor standards. So the right to collectively bargain, um, not discriminate. You have to have a minimum wage. You don't have to have my minimum wage, but you have to have a minimum wage. Those kinds of basic standards were going to be part of the deal that Vietnam would have to take on, and then ultimately was going to be enforceable. So it wouldn't necessarily have been enforceable in the same way that an anti-dumping case would have been, whereas a, you know, a domestic firm could have just lobbied the Commerce Department or filed a case. It would have to go through a formal trade dispute. So the labor union or an American company would have had to first convince the American government to file a case against Vietnam, and then it would have been adjudicated under a, the TPP tribunal. But is that a step in the right direction as you see it? Or is that not going to how you think this issue of social dumping should be addressed? 
I think it's a, it's a, I think it's a small step in the right direction. I think it's it's you know much better than the you know side agreement on labor in NAFTA and much better than what was which was in turn better than what was there before. I, I'm all for it and I, I'm I'm happy to see that 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 there's more thinking going on along these lines. But I, what I don't like about the, what I didn't like about TP, TPP is that you know there are there are many other things that that uh, go in the other direction, and I just fundamentally thought that this was not the right thing for the U.S. administration to be wasting uh, political capital on. Now, of course, I, I sort of see and understand what happened here, that this was largely a deal that captured the imagination of the U.S. Um, foreign policy uh, 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 community because it was because of its geopolitical angle, uh, which is, you know, what can we do for Asia uh, beyond our military commitment? And what we, can we do something that will, you know, not to put, you know, to fine uh, print on it, uh, isolate China? Um, and I think this was the solution uh, that the U.S. foreign policy community came up with. Once you had this idea, then I think you had all these, you know, especially pharmaceuticals and many other uh, private interests sort of put in their own sort of special things into it. Uh, and then so you got something that really wasn't economically a very big deal uh, for the United States at all. It, it's, it's tiny. Uh, came at a very large political cost, as we saw during the election. Um, and um, I think from the perspective of, uh, you know, the developing countries or other countries in the agreement, um, I think um, created some precedents that was were largely negative. You know, even though I think that, you know, if Vietnam were to live up to those labor uh, commitments, uh, I think on the whole it would be a good thing, but you know that wasn't the only thing. And and as I said, I think earlier, I'm a little bit skeptical. If you read about the whole the procedures uh, with the sort of the, the labor uh, agreement, you know, sort of you know how long it was going to take, and and uh, so I'm not, you know, it's it's not like ISDS, you know, it's not the kind of assurance that it provides to investors uh, about how you know sort of getting their way. So in the end, I don't think it's a very particularly effective way, and I think if we're going to talk about improving labor standards. I don't want this, that discussion to be taking place in the context of trade agreements. Uh, I don't want trade negotiators to be taking, you know, to be carrying that discussion. Uh, I think that that subverse uh, the, the purpose. Um, so again, going back to your question, was on, the, on balance, was that labor provision on balance is a good thing? I think so, yes. But I think it's, it's uh, the, the, on the big picture, I think the whole strategy uh, was wrong, and I think it, it it backfired. I guess my issue with the labor standards thing is that I agree a debate would be really good. It would be great to to have these discussions. Where on the spectrum should we be? And even if it is done domestically, then still fundamentally, someone in say the U.S. will end up deciding whether imports from, say, Mexico should be blocked based on a judgment that that US judge has made on what the labor standards in Mexico should be. And supposing you're a company or you're a worker in Mexico who's being hit by that, or you might feel that someone else has made a judgment on your rules and those rules should be you know, yours to, to change. So, so I understand the point about procedures, but it still feels like there's so, this worry that someone yeah. else is making a decision on your yeah. laws for you. No, no. So this again, it's important to clarify that the point of the 
the point of international negotiations on labor standards is to raise other countries' labor standards. The point of my social dumping procedure is to protect our domestic workers from low, low labor standards or low social standards in other countries. So there's a difference. In practice, that difference might be clouded. Uh, but there's a difference between doing something because you know you want to uphold your own standards versus doing something because you want to make other countries look more like you. Um, so the social dumping is really not meant to say to, first of all, it wouldn't be all Mexican exports. It would be particular item being imported from a particular source, which is subject to, let's say, you know, exploitative labor conditions. And then the procedure would be, um, you know, is this something that is essentially telling our workers that they need to, um, you know, you know, that they would undermine their labor standards. And, uh, and, and in that case, we, you know, the, we would not be, we as the United States, we're not telling the Mexican producer necessarily that the, you have to change your labor standards. We're just saying that, you know, we don't have to accept these imports. Now, in practice, that might tell the Mexican producers that, that the cost of maintaining exploitative labor practices have gone up because now you cannot export these things. Uh, but I, I do think it's very important in the international economy as a whole to uphold the principle that countries have the right to uphold the integrity of their regulatory regimes and their standards. And that's okay. But it is not okay to extend those standards uh, to other countries, to tell other countries what is it that they ought to be doing. Um, and I think that's an important principle of, of you know, a as, as a principle. Although, of course, you know, as, as, as I, you know, you, you know, you might say, you know, if an important country does something that is going to increase the cost of having low standards in another country, that's uh, the other country might then decide that it has no choice to to improve its standards as well. Uh, but but I think that that distinction is an important one in practice. That's the end of part two of our four-part conversation with Danny Roderick. Thanks to Danny Roderick, and thanks also to the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. Thanks to them for hosting a conference that brought the three of us together. And thanks, as always, to our listeners. Please do keep in touch. On Twitter, I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks because even a two-part episode with Danny Roderick just wasn't enough. <laughs>